if you look at uh, the way our society has evolved and how it exists, it's it's very complex. How do you how do you uh, make sense of this civilization? If you were a person <laughs> assigned to uh, accurately describe everything that was going on today, down to the minutest detail, there's no one no one individual has that power or intelligence or information knowledge it's a be impossible but if we go if we look at this this ancient civilization which is egypt the uh, the people that we make responsible for explaining all of that are archaeologists and historians well i think we expect too much of them Hi, everybody. This is Mind the Shift. I am Anders. I'm the host of this podcast, this uh, channel. Um, we've delved into the mysteries of the origins of humankind's civilization, the civilizations of humankind many times on this channel, on this podcast. And Egypt is one of the focal points of that whole discussion, not least because of the uh, enigmatic rift between the obvious spectacular level of advancement and exactness of these uh, ancient Egyptian artifacts and the standard story about how all this was constructed, namely with hand tools made of uh, bronze and copper, stone and wood. There is one person who uh, probably has had more influence than anybody else on alternative views on the textbook version of ancient Egyptian technology. He's written three prominent books on that subject. And that is actually a piece of news because number three is soon to be published. He is an engineer and because of that, he has the perspective of precisely the people who obviously must have built the wonders of ancient Egypt. And he's very much not an Egyptologist and not an archaeologist. And precisely because of that, I would not hesitate to call him a leading expert in this field, the field of ancient technology, technology of ancient Egypt. I'd like to welcome Christopher Dunn. Nice to be here, Anders. Thank you for inviting me. Great. My pleasure. Um, so the two books that you are known for are uh, the first one is the, the Giza Power Plant and then Lost Technologies of Ancient Egypt. But today you can tell uh, the, uh, or we can tell the audience uh, about the sequel to the first one. And it has the title Giza, the Tesla Connection. The subtitle is Acoustical Science and the Harvesting of Clean Energy. Very exciting. And we'll come back to that book in a little bit, of course, um, because we, I mean, we've spoken, you and I, about um, uh, uh, making perhaps a second episode about the contents of precisely that new book. But we'll, of course, talk a little bit about it. So w when is it coming out? Um, it will, should be uh, in print uh, by December, December of this year. Um, the production schedule um, will make 
they'll make galleys available by August. So they will go out to reviewers uh, for commentary. And, uh, and then, of course, you know, the final edits and uh, putting the book together. Uh, and then the publication date will be December 2023. We expect it to be on Amazon for pre-orders this spring sometime. Uh, So, uh, you know, you could still reserve a copy if you're interested in it. Wonderful. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, I'm excited. I'd love to read it when when I can lay my hands on it, uh, of course. Um, So, but I want to back up a little bit before we we talk a little bit about that book and, of course, uh, even more about your, the two books that have been out for, for quite some time now and the, discussions about your findings and all that. So just to back up a little bit, because the audience of this podcast, this channel, my, I mean, it's a its a broad spectrum of people, but I, so I think quite a few of them know about your work, but many may not know that much about your work and, and what you've been doing. So Chris, how, how did it all start? You, you wrote a paper about ancient, uh, advanced ancient tech in Egypt already in the, in the 1980s. So why did you become so fascinated with ancient Egypt? Well, the uh, in, in 1977, I bought a book entitled Secrets of the Great Pyramid by Peter Tompkins. And uh, it was through reading that book and accessing some of the, the source material that he, uh, <clears throat> that he cited in, in his work, such as the work of uh, William Flinders Petrie, Pierre Smythe, another... Uh, authors and researchers. Um, I started to see the book, or the, I started, started to see the Great Pyramid as uh, more like a machine than a a tomb. Uh, and the two things that actually uh, prompted the, that thinking was that the interior design of the Great Pyramid, um, it had the appearance more of a machine with some uh, really unusual uh, shafts uh, that are on different angles. You have uh, shafts, passageways, chambers with unique design and characteristics. Uh, The King's Chamber has unique design and characteristics. And so, None of the none of the features within the, the Great Pyramid, to, to my mind, uh, actually supported the the idea or the theory that uh, it was used as a, a for a place of burial for Khufu. Uh, the other aspect to it is it wasn't just the way it looked, but uh, how it was measured and what was discovered in those measurements. And so, what? Uh, we can say, you know, or we could summarize it by saying not only did it have the appearance of a machine, but uh, on a scale of acres, it had the precision of a machine. Uh, because, you know, when when you look at some of the findings of Petrie when he was measuring the casing stones, he, uh, he, he declared them to be ultra-precise and normally not found uh, uh, precision normally not found except in 
you know, the, the straight edges of uh, opticians. It, he never said that it was uh, an optical precision, but he referenced a, one of the tools that opticians may use in that work. Uh, so <clears throat> it was that that caught my eye. Another uh, aspect to it on the, the, the base of the Great Pyramid, the precision of the base is within seven-eighths of an inch, over 13 acres. Uh, that is remarkable when you consider that uh, <clears throat> modern uh, requirements for laying down find, uh, foundations and how precise they should be, they require a foundation to be within 20,000 uh, per foot of being uh, accurate and 20,000 of an inch. Hmm. Uh, <clears throat> that sounds pretty accurate to me. Well, it's about the thickness of a thumbnail. And so, you know, that uh, 20,000 of an inch uh, over 13 acres, uh, 20,000 of an inch over per foot over 13 acres would work out to be about 15 inches. Hmm. And here you have something from uh, antiquity, prehistory, that is uh, within a fraction of that, seven-eighths of an inch. So, I mean, it's like, yeah, that, that is something to take note. And then it was within three minutes of a degree of being uh, aligned with true, true north. Yeah. But it's then you go it's amazing. The, but then you go into the interior of the Great Pyramid. And it, a lot of people, they, they, you know, they say, oh, the casing stones, the casing stones. Petrie measured the alignment of the descending passage. And he noted that the descending passage uh, is straight through the constructed portion. Because the entrance of the Great Pyramid on the north face, uh, it goes down about 150 feet before it hits bedrock. It uh, goes down on a 26-degree angle, and then it hits Bedrock is about 150 feet. But over the 150 feet, uh, it's, it is within, again, 20 thousandths of an inch of being absolutely straight over 150 feet. Mm. That's remarkable. Mm. Uh, it's, it's pretty difficult to do that with uh, hand tools, isn't it? Well, it's, it's you know, the, the thing with about precision is that it is a it is a concept that did not always exist in and how humans perform their work uh, uh, particularly when you're talking about precision down to uh, microns or you know thousands of an inch uh, or <clears throat> those kind of tolerances were not we're not they did not find them necessary uh, until we started to develop more advanced technology and, you know, such as the printing industry, that's where uh, flat surfaces, it became uh, understood that you would get uh, better printing if you had a, two perfectly flat surfaces pressing against each other. Uh, and then the Industrial Revolution, the development of machine tools uh, <clears throat> and other, other machines where it was, it was obviously... Uh, it required precision in order for these machines to function. And so that's where 
that kind of precision became more well-known and understood, even though uh, the, an intimate understanding of it is you have to rely on those people who are practitioners within certain trades that uh, it is a requirement for them for their, them to to work. Uh, an understanding and a practice that achieves that precision is a requirement for them to hold down a job because whatever they ship to their customer has to be within certain tolerances and those tolerances uh, define what how precise an object must be. Uh, and there are many different, I mean, there are different classes of, of trades, for instance. Uh, and and so the uh, the requirements on a on a quarry worker would be less than the requirements, say, on a carpenter, um, and the requirements on a carpenter would be less than the requirements on a a, a skilled machinist, and the requirements on a skilled machinist would be uh, uh, less than the requirements on a, a tool and die maker. And so on, and so on, and so on. So you go down, you know, where you say, okay, in this trade, you work to within, uh, say, one thirty seconds of an inch or a millimeter. You, this trade, you work to within uh, ten thousandths of an inch. This trade, you work to one thousandths of an inch. This trade, you work to uh, two ten thousandths of an inch, which is point zero 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 two inches. Uh, all the way down to nanometers, where you are now working with wave, wavelengths of light, and you work in, in op optical uh, precision. So you know. Yeah. Anyway, that, I mean, th th this is all is is fantastic. And I can I can hear now that you you are you are describing these things very much from the perspective of, uh, perspective of an engineer, and you're talking about different trades here and engineering. Uh, specificities uh, around this, but and and it's one thing to to visit the pyramids of Giza and read about these things, and as an engineer, see that these these level these levels of precision are wouldn't be necessary to build a tomb and all that. But to go from there to actually having it become your passion, as it has been, and writing books about it, that's I mean that's a stretch. I mean, I guess <laughs> other engineers than you have have seen this, but they haven't written books about it. But you did. Well, it was a stretch. <laughs> it was a huge stretch. Yes. Uh, thank you. I'm glad you recognize that. But you know, when I when I began my studies, I uh, I had I was faced. Well, I that was when I first got the the basic idea that the Great Pyramid was a machine. And then, of course, the next question is, uh, as any mechanic would ask, is, uh, well, if it's a machine, what did it do? You know. How did it function? And so that was <laughs> that was one one night. All of that came to be one night in nineteen seventy seven in September nineteen seventy seven, and and then uh, the light bulb went off, and I uh, I started to see a pattern, or you know, certain certain threads that said, okay, well, I, I need to follow this thread and find out. What about the acoustics? Because that seemed to be a big thing with earlier explorers. Uh, and what about some of the um, some of the substances, you know, that uh, have been found with inside the Great Pyramid? Everything about the Great Pyramid. 
because one of the things that I, I, I tasked myself with was uh, everything had to have an explanation. Uh, and if there was anything, you know, within a within the structure that you're going to build, say, I, I'm, I'm going to build a, a virtual uh, power plant or electron harvester uh, shaped like a pyramid, and every every detail within this within this structure has to work. Uh, <clears throat> and if you, I mean, that's just say if I'm looking as a science fiction writer into the future and, and uh, you know, and uh, and being a, a good science fiction writer, I, I, I can't violate, you know, the laws of physics or anything like that. I have to, uh, well, I can stretch a little bit like, <laughs> but the, uh, but the, the objective of good science fiction is to use what is currently known about science and then imagine uh, in the future, what it would evolve to, and that's uh, you know why we have devices today that were imagined fifty years before they became a reality, like cell phones or smartphones. Yeah. They were actually imagined back in the fifties and sixties, weren't they? In yes, the right. So, uh, <clears throat> so there is that part to it. There is a kind of a science fiction part to it, and then there is a, a kind of a a historical uh, touchstone where uh, <clears throat> you go back to the source, which is the Great Pyramid, to gather more information, which inspires thought on how something may function and how what what it could lead to in the future. So really, it's not. It wasn't a an exercise where I thought that I would uh, rewrite history books. You know, I, uh, it's always been my my uh, policy, or if you will, my thought that uh, I I just want to start a discussion, right? And uh, and I'm not interested in in uh, in saying to the Egyptians, uh, well, you need to you need to rewrite your history books, and this is how they should be written, you know. <laughs> uh, <laughs> That that would be a little uh, colonial of me, <laughs> and uh, probably. Yeah, but if you if you if you were an, um, an African citizen or an Asian citizen, you might be able to do that without feeling that colonial vibe. Yes, right. So, the, and and really, unfortunately, that, uh, you're a Westerner. Well, that's the thing is with Egyptians. That's that's what happened, isn't it? I mean, they. Uh, their history was written for them and and handed to them. Yeah, so, hey, yeah, there you go. That's, that's true. Here's true. your history. And <clears> they <throat> go, oh, thank you very much. But now, <laughs> now they're saying, wait a minute, uh, we've been told the wrong the wrong history. This is this is not right. Yeah, it's very interesting uh, what's happening yeah. now. Because you know, you know what, uh, a very interesting development after, of course, the the Giza power plant was was published and the reception that it received i mean it was it was a fairly controversial and uh, rather futuristic uh theory and uh and i didn't expect everybody to say oh yeah okay that's it well maybe i did more than what actually happened i i i thought that maybe some people uh in the alternate space you know the alternate research 
those interested in uh, in revisionist history uh, may may accept it a little more, but as it turns out, they haven't. Which you know that's their that's their right. Uh, but uh, <clears throat> that didn't stop me. Uh, but it also uh, it mirrored the reception it got from uh, academics. And uh, there was one of the, I think, probably the kindest comment that was made about the Geese Power Plant was from a professor uh, at uh, Wales, in, in Wales. Uh, he was a history professor. And uh, in his book, uh, Shadow Past, he, he said that all this sounds like uh, something that is coming straight from uh, fruitcake land. <laughs> and so I was, I was like, yeah, I know. Yeah, okay. I write about that in my book. You know, that, that is a part. But I, I suppose that the independent researchers and the, the mainstream researchers, they had ob objections uh, of different types, didn't they? Yes, yes. And, the th and you know, the thing is, is, is when you... As a newcomer, and really, I'm not. When you looked at the when you look at the the field of researchers back in the 1990s, uh, you were you were looking at people like Graham Hancock, John Anthony West, uh, Robert Vaval, and uh, Robert Shark, who was brought in by John Anthony West, and uh, those people were already, you know becoming known uh, as operating in that space. Uh, I came, I come along, uh, but this is, this wasn't my first rodeo, as they say in the States, you know, it's like, uh, because I had been published in 1984, uh, but to most people, I'm just a newcomer. And uh, so- Yeah, that um, was the, the paper that I mentioned before. Was it a, was it a peer-reviewed paper or what kind of article was it that you published? In it was a, uh, <clears throat> well, the, the, the magazine was uh, Analog Science Fiction Science Fact. And they, every month they published a, an article, a, a, a science fact article. And the, uh, the, the editor was uh, Dr. Stanley Schmidt. And he uh, and he accepted the paper for publication because it was controversial, and uh, he thought it evidently he thought it was uh, well presented and logical. Um, but it did he did uh, cause a bit of a firestorm. But it died. I mean, it went out there in '84. Uh, and uh, it, there was a few letters to the editor. It was picked up as one of the best uh, fact articles of the 80s and published in an anthology, uh, Analog uh, Essays on Science. And that was published by John Wiley in 1991. Uh, but then it didn't, it didn't, uh, it, it wasn't really discussed until uh, the birth of the internet and uh, message boards, dis discussion boards on uh, Okay. Uh, and so, yeah. And one of the uh, reader of that magazine uh, became aware of a discussion of it or introduced the subject to a message board on Deja News, 
and uh, that was in 1995. Okay. And, and that was about the same time I, I got access to the internet. And then I was invited into the discussion. And so that's when I, I began to learn about, uh, you know, some of the, the, the downside of uh, having internet discussions with faceless, nameless people. And so, yeah, them, tell me about it. Yeah. Some of them are using pseudonyms and, you know, don't know. identify themselves. Okay. So that's how it all started. Fascinating. Before I, ask more specific questions about the the, the Great Pyramid and, 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 and all these marvelous Egyptian uh, artifacts. I just want to know if you, you have, over the course of the years here, developed a, a similar fascination for other ancient megalithic wonders around the world, such as, you know, Sacsayhuaman in Peru, Teotihuacan in Mexico, Baalbek in Lebanon, Gebekli Tepe in uh, Turkey, Angkor Wat in Cambodia. There are so many. Have, have you that? Yeah. Yes, I mean, there there have been, uh, I have had opportunities to visit South America and I've been to Peru and uh, Bolivia. And so I've been to Saxo-Aman, Ayantitambo, Machu Picchu. Uh, Umapunku. Umapunku, yeah. I mean, that was, uh, that was a very, very interesting time. I, um, David Childress wanted to make uh, a video of, uh, lost technologies in, in Peru and Bolivia. And so he got a camera guy uh, and uh, we headed down to Peru. And and so we were going through Peru and looking at, you know, it was marvelous stonework, stuff like that. Uh, certainly they had very accurate flat surfaces uh, displayed, but I, I didn't see anything there that I could say with certainty that this had to have been done with a machine because uh, it's too precise or, you know, the, the geometries are too complex. Uh, there are certain features that exist in it that uh, you generally would not be able to achieve by hand. No, it's, uh, it's, it's more, I was in Peru in November last year, and uh, to me it's... Um, it's it looks more organic in a way the structures in in yeah. yeah they're very i mean they're not 90 degree angles and things like that it's just very very strange some some structures like Waman, they look like they've been it's like petrified marshmallows almost very very right. huge stone blocks you can't understand how they have put them there and how how they can be so exact i mean the joints are so you can't even get a human hair in between the, the stone blocks, but they're not they're not angular, they're not straight, which is very peculiar. Right, right. I know. And they're interlocking. I mean they have one one particular stone in that uh Saxon, uh wall that's twelve sided and uh everything kind of locks together. But if you look at it and you look at and you see the way I mean you know, it's kind of wall that you would build if you were uh, built it to withstand earthquakes. You know, because if you look at the way the, way the wall is fitted, uh, when you think of lateral forces acting on the wall, uh, you can see where uh, the, the blocks would be prevented from moving. 
and they ha- they have been prevented from moving for thousands of years, probably thousands of years. Yes, so it's it's a really remarkable structure, and and it's and there's no no nothing that I can point to and say, oh, this was machine because look at the geometry, look at the precision, look at the you know it's precise, but it's precise in a way that it's like, well, uh, it has this curve and then it comes down to a radius and then it it falls around here and it, you know all of these but it's all like you said it's it's more organic it's more uh it's not it's not you know accurate uh, cartesian geometry or anything like like that that you would find in egypt it's it's more i don't know something that an artist would would uh, create um Maybe some kind of technology that we don't know anything about that we've lost. Uh, that I mean, that that builds upon other other kinds of physical uh, laws than that than we are used to. I, I don't know. I'm just speculating here, like acoustics, like vibration, like uh, sound, things like that. Right. Yeah. I mean, there's there's all all those possibilities, uh, and I don't I don't I would entertain all of them except some. There are some kind kind of far out theories that I don't go for. Uh, there's been some effort to argue that they were using sun discs, and so they were they were using a focused sunlight mm-hmm. to uh, okay. to create these artifacts, and that that is just a, an impossibility. Yeah, it? I haven't heard that one. And then the <clears throat> the other one is the uh, the geopolymer. Argument where yes. they were actually uh, conglomerated stone uh, and uh, and you know built like like you would build a, a cement structure or something like that. Yeah, which as a French professor, I think its name is Davidovitz, who has uh, developed this. Yeah, theory. Joseph Davidovitz, and uh, and so you know there there is that. Um, and there's always a tendency to look for the most what, what we something that we can hold on to that, that we understand when something that is seemingly impossible we face with something that's seemingly impossible and it's like uh, <clears throat> uh, people will say well they must have poured them that's a very simple explanation right but it's not it's not a simple explanation it actually introduces more complexity because if you have like a precision vase from ancient Egypt or uh, any precision artifact, maybe the the Ramses statue, which uh, has remarkable precision and geometry associated with it, to say, well, they must have poured it into a mold. And then the question becomes, okay, so how did they make the mold? (laughs) Yes. They didn't think of that. <laughs> That's why, I mean, how well, How did they make the mold? Uh, you know, at some point, there's, there was machining involved, uh, and highly precise machining. So how did they make the mold to do that? And there are no answers to that question because it's it's not the right answer. You, we have to, you know, can you consider, if you, you consider uh, like a Ramsey's head, just, just take the head, forget about the body, uh, and you say, "Okay, I'm going to make a mold that will I can I can turn these out 
you know, a dozen a day in my shop. Uh, but you're looking at a mold where you are actually having to craft into the mold uh, in, internal surfaces that will have the same precision and, and uh, accuracy and geometry that you see on the, on the, the final product. Right? Oh, yeah, so yeah, yeah. Of course. Of that, I mean, otherwise it wouldn't look the way it is. Like, well, no, I don't believe that they had machining back in ancient Egypt. They did everything with mold. And so then your question is, okay, how do they make the mold? <laughs> yeah, good question. So yeah, you've already touched upon the controversies around your your work, and uh, I don't know what's part of it is most controversial. But, but I mean, uh, of your all your conclusions about what might have taken place there. But perhaps it is the one that is revealed by the title of your first book there, the Giza Power Plant, and you've already. Uh, touched on 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 the power plant thing here and i think i know it's a complicated thing to explain in 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 its total complexity but but can you give a brief summary of what you think was the purpose of of the giza pyramids or at least the the, the great pyramid and and why you think it was a power plant can you do that in a, a few minutes do you think well it, it, it has a fundamental uh uh the fundamental basis for our operation of, of the, the Giza power plant, uh, I, I refer to it as a coupled oscillator. Uh, because of its size and dimensions, it's a, uh, an integer uh, to the planet. So it, it has uh, a certain harmonic relationship to, to planet Earth. And uh, a coupled oscillator if it's attached to a larger vibrating body, as long as that uh, and then caused to couple with it and oscillate with it uh, harmonically or, or or otherwise, the uh, <clears throat> as long as the larger vibrating body continues to vibrate, then the oscillator will continue to draw energy out of it. Uh, and where and does that go? Where, where does the energy go? Is it is it cordless is it um well maybe well, that's, that's what you're talking it, about in your yeah, new book that's, that's just the fundamental kind of uh explanation for the shape of the pyramid the, you know the, the selection of materials and it's it's uh, location on the planet but then you get into okay so you've got a vibrating mass of rock i understand that now what do you do with it and uh, and and then you, we get into in the, the first book, we get into the the function of the different passageways and chambers uh, and shafts within the Great Pyramid, and the, what they uh, uh, teach us if we try to explain uh, why they exist, uh, their characteristics, their attributes. Um, for instance, the shafts in the King's Chamber. Well. What were they for? Do we buy the uh, do we buy the conventional theory that they were air shafts used to ventilate the chamber, or were they something else? And uh, in the you know the the uh, Great Pyramid machine model, obviously, I say, well, they must have been something else. And so, uh, taking the measurements of the 
uh, chefs, uh, you find that there are uh, very unique measures, 8.4 by 4.8, and uh, with 8.3 or 9 inches or 21 centimeters being the wavelength of hydrogen, then you have a suitable weight guide for a hydrogen microwave. So that leads you to the Queen's Chamber uh, because there are substances and observations that, that were made in the Queen's Chamber going back to the uh, 1870s with Wayman Dixon. And, they, uh, and that chamber is reported to have been uh, covered with salt uh, up to one inch thick. And then it has these shafts that were not connected to the chamber. There are two of them, one on the south side, one on the north side. And they uh, <clears throat> were discovered in 1872 by Wayman Dixon. Uh, and he noted a crack in the wall. And that's how he discovered them. He pushed a rod through the crack. And the rod just it met no resistance. So. He had uh, the limestone chiseled away, and they ultimately went through to reveal uh, the shaft. Uh, it had like five inches of limestone that's still left on the, on the in the wall block where the shaft uh, was came near to the to the, the inside of the chamber, but it never did uh, connect with it completely. Mm. Well, even five inches of limestone between. And uh, and so that was a mystery. Um, you had the salt, and then, of course, the, the reported uh, disgusting smell that uh, drove people uh, out of the chamber in the early days. That was, uh, that was uh, uh, the, the responsibility for that disgusting smell was people going in there and relieving themselves. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> And so uh, <clears throat> then, you know, there, is, there are other features within the southern shaft where that show that there is a significant erosion in the shaft, uh, the presence of gypsum. Uh, and, uh, and then nothing was known about where the exit was, even though they searched the outside the pyramid and uh, to see if there was an exit point for the shaft coming from the queen's chamber they couldn't find one uh <clears throat> and um in 1992 or three i think it was three when uh rudolf gantz you probably heard of him he's a german robotic engineer uh he was commissioned by the the german uh archaeological institute in uh in Cairo uh, to build a robot to go up those shafts and clean them. It was intended to clean out the, the shafts from the, Queen's, the King's Chamber uh, and install ventilation fans because of uh, the number of visitors that were going through the Great Pyramid. It, uh, humidity was uh, building up and so they were concerned about the integrity of, of the structure. And so then, after he had cleaned out those shafts, and, and he actually uh, created, uh, took measurements uh, of the different angles, distances, and created a website 
where you can see the uh, his CAD drawings uh, of these uh, of these features. Um, he uh, presented the idea to to I think Rainer Stellman, who is the director of the German mission there, that uh, he also explore the southern shaft in the Queen's chamber because nobody knew where it ended. And so he thought that if he could build a robot to go up that shaft, he may find where he may find where it where it would end. And and so his robot, Upoat 2, which I mean this is a very well known expedition on his part. And uh, and it's uh, his work was released, I think, by Robert Wabal. Uh, That's where they found the, the, the corroded uh, metal things at the end of one tunnel, was it? Exactly, yes. Yeah. Right. And so he, he, uh, his, his uh, robot goes uh, over, over 200 feet up, up, the, uh, up this shaft, the sun, like 40, 43 degree, 39 degree angle. And then it comes up to a blockage uh, uh, where two metal metal fittings are protruding through through the block and that was it uh, <clears throat> i had adjusted my theory in 1993 because i had proposed that the uh, that the those shafts because they were closed on both ends uh that they were used to feed chemicals into the queen's chamber from the north and south, two different chemicals, and then those chemicals mixed and, and boiled off hydrogen, and then the uh, the signature for the hydrogen is of course in the king's chamber, but the uh, but then you know that's that wavelength of microwave affecting uh, hydrogen hydrogen gas uh, that filled the Great Pyramid ultimately would uh, would convert. The energy flowing through the Great Pyramid uh, and drive the, drive that hydrogen to a higher energy state uh, to where it would uh, become suitable for a population inversion where a, a microwave signal coming into that energized gas would uh, stimulate emission of uh, photons or you know, the electrons would be bumped down to ground state, releasing a little package of energy, which would... Yeah, I mean, it's, to a layman, you would want to know in what form, the, uh, what, what, what form of, uh, what, what kind of uh, final energy uh, came out of the pyramids, I mean, to, for the population to use there, for the society to use. Was it, was it like, was it electricity or was it... What was well, it? it's electromagnetic energy, and so. It, uh, and how was it? How was it harnessed? Uh, some people say that that it was transmitted from, or I mean, I haven't. I have read your second book, not this one, but <clears throat> so maybe it's it's in your book, of course. But some people think that it was some kind of transmission from the from the tip of the pyramids to the to the obelisks that were placed around the area, and that they were some kind of antenna. Antenna. What do you think? Yeah. Of that? Um, I don't, I don't discount it entirely. Um, I, I, you know, when you look, when you look at the, uh, the sophistication of those obelisks 
and uh, and you know the understanding there. Uh, my understanding, having been through Egypt, uh, visited the temples, and you know all through Egypt from north to south, uh, an understanding that they seem to be focused a lot on on, on acoustics. You know, even in their temples, uh, they seem to acoustics was very important to them. And and so, <clears throat> if you consider a uh, an obelisk being a standing spire, uh, to say that it's just a piece of dead dead weight and it's not really doing anything, uh, uh, that is that is the wrong because you know anything that is attached to the to to the earth uh, is going to uh, be influenced by forces within the earth itself and also the uh, within the atmosphere and so if there is well know, look at light lightning kind of by trees for instance yeah some kind of tesla transmission of wireless or energy or something like that uh i wouldn't i would not discount the idea that the pyramids played the uh, obelisk played some part in that but i'm not convinced but i don't discount it did, did water play an important part? I mean, some people also talk about the possibility that, that there were enormous amounts of water floating beneath, uh, actually beneath the whole Giza plateau in, in canals and, and uh, things like that, and that that was also pivotal in the in the in the creation of uh, well of, of the energy that that was needed. What do you think? Yeah. I think that has a lot of value, and uh, and it's obvious when you go around the Giza Plateau uh, and you look at some, the various shafts, the very deep shafts uh, that exist on the Giza Plateau, you have some that uh, show signs of wear or erosion, uh, presumably by water, and then very close by, there are other shafts that show no no signs of erosion at all, and and so you know when you when you look at different hydraulic systems, well, just take a the hydraulic system you have in your house, right? When you flush the toilet, uh, <clears throat> and you know the tank empties and goes down. Um, in the in your sewer system, there is a, a vent pipe that uh, leads to the outside uh, to allow air, so you don't, you know, you're not drawing a vacuum in in the pipe. So, you know, it allows the free flow of, of water. And so, you know, I, I ask the question: Are these uh, are some of these shafts vent pipes, and others uh, supply pipes, or for whatever reason they had? Um, but my my thought, my thinking on the full system, which you know, for one single person, it's it'd be impossible. You know, uh, uh, it's impossible for me. Maybe somebody else could do it. But to understand completely everything that was going on on the Giza Plateau with the, uh, the all the pyramids, um, you know, the first, second, third, all the the the, uh, the Queen's Pyramids to the east of the Great Pyramid to the south of uh, Menkura's Pyramid, 
you have all these pyramids, you have all these uh, structures near them uh, that they call temples. And then there are uh, myriads of shafts and tunnels that go under the, under the Giza Plateau. Uh, and some of them connecting with the Sphinx, and and it's like there is more going on there than we know about. Um, but as I look at it, looking back, my first book, while it, it took the idea of um, of not necessarily the, uh, the the function of water or hydraulics, uh, but it did ad address a means of uh, causing the Great Pyramid to vibrate uh, through uh, a kind of a Tesla technology, you know, the earthquake machine, I did refer to that, because it did need some stimulation to get, to get the system going. Chris, in your book, um, Lost Technologies of Ancient Egypt, the one that I've read <laughs> you rank egypt's six most impressive wonders and you top the list with if i if i'm not mistaken the the ramses right. statues in luxor and the giza pyramids end up as number three only which would surprise many i think C can you explain that ranking oh well i think uh yeah it's or have you changed it now after a few <laughs> years <laughs> i'm allowed to am i allowed to <laughs> yes you are yeah you know, at the time, the thing is, is that when I when I when I started to uh, <clears throat> key into the the Ramsey statue, that that started back in two thousand four when I went first went to look. Actually, no, it first started in nineteen eighty six, and uh, I wasn't necessarily interested in tombs or statues or things like that because I was more interested in in what I consider to be engineered stuff, <laughs> you know, like pyramids and stuff like that. That that was my main focus. So when I when I started to uh, notice something really special about um, the Ramsey statue, um, it, I became obsessed with it. It was it was like it was like such an amazing period of time in my life when I, uh, and I actually went back to Egypt several times because I thought maybe I could get, you know, a bed. Oh, and I should have looked at this. And, you know, I need to get a, a macro lens. And, uh, you know, all these things uh, going through my mind. I, oh, I need to go to the British Museum and look at their statue and take photographs. Uh, you go about these things very meticulously. It's obvious in the book. And, and so all of this was like a journey through lost technologies of ancient Egypt. It was my journey of discovery with the Ramsey statue, which was entirely different to the uh, the Giza Parkland. It was related but different. And and uh, <clears throat> I think when I when I uh, boosted the Ramsey statue to the number one on the list. It was, it was because of the complexity of, of the geometries and the precision of the geometries, uh, which uh, if you were to uh, 
compare that with what we have today in terms of uh, uh, what we use those kind those kind of geometries and precision for uh i could say i could tell you well you, you would find you know the same kind of uh precision and feel of, of a surface uh, where uh radii flow together from one radius to another you know free form blah blah uh you would you could look at a like a car you know uh, a car body or something like that or even well, even a even a mouse, you know, that you might be using with your computer. So precision uh, manufacturing is what precision what manufacturing, right? And then uh, when you look at the because, because I mean people people see these things as artistic artifacts, like statues in in Rome or Greece or or something like that. But you write in your book that the, that would be. I mean, if a person, if if an artist would do this, it would look completely different. It wouldn't look like this, right? Right. I, I mean, it looks more, uh, if you separate, if you kind of just take the major features and do a line drawing, uh, a geometric line drawing using, uh, you know, ellipses or uh, blended curves around the, the, the Ramsey statue, you come up with something that looks almost cartoonish. And, <clears throat> and then when you look at some of the features of the statue, um, you see that there are certain features that uh, do not include what you would look for on a, like, take a hand. Uh, and, you know, you have knuckles and you have foldy skin on the knuckles and stuff like that. Not Ramsey statues. I mean, it's almost like, you know, the uh, the, the programmers of the, 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 those who program the machine to do that, they, they, they use the, the least amount of uh, machine code to produce these objects, you know, but they made them look uh, impressive. And they are identical. And how, how many are they? The, the, the Ramses statues that you've you've looked at. Uh, they claim there are over a hundred, and the, and they're the, all they're all the same. They're all identical, are they? They have the yes. I mean, you you can't you can't mistake the uh, the face of Ramses. Uh, the geometries and the uh, the proportions are the same with every one of them. There's no well, mistake. Uh, Mark, it's it's uh, fantastic. It's amazing. I mean, it, it's really compelling when you read the book that this is made by machine. This is manufactured because if, I mean, as the standard story has it, <clears throat> individuals have, have chiseled out this as like uh, artistic work. They wouldn't be identical. They would be. They would be. The statues would be individual uh, things. And uh, yeah, I mean, look at Rome or right. Greece. As I said, that that's completely different. Yeah. No. There's. I mean, there is. Uh, there are people there out there who really don't grasp the uh, implications of it, or even understand uh, the demands of uh, from engineers or artists or if you're a sculptor what what is demanded of you to replicate a Ramsey statue and the first thing you have to do is you you have to have very accurate measurements uh three-dimensional measurements of the statue before you could even begin to start uh chiseling one out and and there have been attempts to argue against the idea that 
uh, these are more advanced than what uh, sculptures generally are known to produce, uh, but the evidence they present does not reflect any, uh, a, a good understanding of engineering uh, and, and, uh, and precision particularly. So, you know, <clears throat> um, you have to look at you have to look at the most difficult aspects of the work. There, I mean, this has been proven recently, and, and just on a very small object, uh, there was a, a pre-dynastic urn, Egyptian urn, that has recently been scanned uh, using structured light scanning. Uh, and then an STL file was created. That STL file was now, was now made available uh, on the internet, and people are doing their own analysis of this uh, ancient Egyptian urn. Chris, let's talk a little bit more about that uh, Egyptian urn or vase that has been analyzed now uh, recently by way of modern methods. And I'm gonna I'm gonna share screen now to show this because uh, there's an article about it. Let's see here. If I just share screen here like this for all to see, I think everybody can see that now. There you got it, Chris. Yes. So this is uh, the vase. So can can you just walk us through a little bit what, how, uh, who did this analysis and um, how was it done? If we go back to, the beginning, as far as the current owner, uh, the current owner is a gentleman in New York. His name is Adam Young, and uh, he bought it on the uh, from a, an antiquities dealer in New York, and has had it uh, displayed for a number of years. I don't know how many years, but Adam is a uh, was very interested in 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 the uh, lost technologies aspect of the ancient Egyptians, and that uh, there were there is a, uh, a a story that yet that hasn't been told, and he thought that this particular artifact that that he had could contribute to that story. So, uh, in two thousand eighteen, Adam signed up with his friend for uh, my lost technology tour of Egypt. And uh, that, that was held in 2018. And uh, while there, um, he became friends with my son, Alexander. So Alec uh, and Adam became fast friends. Adam shared the information with Alex about the vase. Um, and then they, it came to the idea that the vase should be examined by metrologists. Adam actually brought it to Indianapolis, and uh, my my son Alex was working at a company called Major Tool in Indianapolis, and the uh, they kindly allowed us to use their inspection lab to do some cursory examination of the artifact, which included traditional methods for 
examining a piece for concentricity uh, uh, and run out. In other words, if you take the hole in the top of the vase, how round is it? And then if you measure the lip on the outside, how concentric is that to the center hole? And all the features that flow down from the top to the bottom uh, undergo that particular examination. One of those machines that is capable of reproducing this particular vase would be a, a 3D printer. That is the easiest way to do it, but the material uh, is not the same. So it's not an ac a fully accurate uh, reproduction of the artifact in terms of uh, dimensions and and materials, but it is an accurate representation. And you do you do have a three D print of it, don't you? <laughs> I do. I me. yes. I, <laughs> oh, there it is. This is it. Yes. So the material is it's made. It's actually three D printed plastic, but the uh, <clears throat> the the geometries and the the. The reproduction is just exactly as uh, like the original, uh, and to the STL file. Mm, but not it's not the same size, is it? It's smaller, or is it the same size? Yes, yes, it's the same size. Okay, it's, 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 it's fairly. It's small. a very small. Yeah, it's a small artifact. It's a smaller. Yeah, and so nice. you know there it is, three uh, D printed. But you haven't got this dotted structure, this dotted uh, pattern on on the outside. As the original. No, <laughs> no, but the, you know the in, the interesting thing is is and if you read the uh, Mark Quist's uh, article, uh, he explains very well the the, the differences uh, in and variations in it that uh, that are only like well, they're down to the micron. Uh, some of them. Uh, uh, what I measured in Indianapolis, uh, the inside bore was within two thousandths of an inch of being true. Mm. Uh, and the, measuring the lugs, I was astounded to learn that they were concentric with the inside bore. Okay, so it's, it's a very long article and there's a lot of math in it. But can you just uh, explain a little bit what we're seeing here? This is the first image in the article. Uh, where there are, there are the, all these concentric circles adding up to a, a beautiful flower in the middle. What can you tell us about that? It's, that's there's an interesting story behind that. You're pulling all these interesting stories out of me now. <laughs> they, Sorry. They, um, when I first uh, saw the report and the the article, and I I saw the flower of life. Uh, it it uh, reminded me of when I was analyzing the the Ramses face, and uh, and I found I found correspondences in the Ramses face that uh, where a flower of life uh, fit very nicely in terms of defining uh, features on the face, like the uh, the eyelids, the mouth. The nose, uh, <clears throat> all of these features, the flower of life seemed to 
seemed to fit. Mm. Now, when I when I describe mm. that in my book, uh, <clears throat> I I uh, wrote a caveat to why I was presenting it, and the caveat is kind of like, okay, this is like this is uh, what I am able to discern in this artifact. That does not mean that that was the intention of the original creators to convey uh, that kind of information. But that's but the way why I include it is to convey more the complexity of the artifacts, mm. right? Because mm. we we really unless until we are, unless we are able to. Maybe we're look, yeah, maybe we're looking at what some people call sacred geometry here. Uh, yes, I mean the that is a term that has been applied to to these uh, geometric calculations. You know the the fl the flower of life seems to uh, fit within that. So the, the measurements yeah. and 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 that you did and the uh, an analysis here. <clears throat> Uh, led to certain conclusions about how this must have been made, and it, and the conclusions were that this could never have been made by by hand or by by an ordinary potter's wheel or something like that. It must have been something more advanced, some more advanced machinery involved in this uh, manufacturing of this vase. Am I right? Exactly right. The uh, one of the issues that you have when you consider, you know. Uh, manufacturing something like this is the machine that you would make it on um, would have to have very precise bearings very precise bearings mm. so the because people who no, made who made this urn they had access to some kind of maybe some yeah. kind of computing machines uh, yes yeah, some something something that uh, had greater control over a tool a material than mm. the human hand or eye. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and and so you know, in in our uh, our civilization, we have developed tools to assist us in that uh, in that way to create things more precise, more precise than human hand or eye can create. Mm -hmm. uh, and so the assumption is that to create this artifact. The ancients had to do the same thing. Yeah, could could we do something like this today? I think we. I think we would have to start uh, with the simplest ways that we can uh, come up with to create that object without without introducing the idea that computers were involved. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> And I say that because um, historically we have we have created very very complicated uh, products over the years without the age without the uh, the assistance of computers. Yeah, and, and it seems to be the first go-to uh, in modern times to say, well, you need CNC and you need computers. Mm. And you may it may be determined that you, you do, mm. um, 
but it, uh, it, I would start with a, a more simpler, old-fashioned means but, of trying to create. Yeah, but like but, we were talking about the, when we talked about um, the Ramses statues, uh, one diff. I mean, one, it's one thing to do to create, to manufacture, to 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 make one urn, one one vase like this uh, without computers. Right. But if you if you make hundreds of them looking exactly the same, then it's a different story, I guess. It's it needs. Uh... Yeah, and and really, you know, when you <laughs> the the thing is, is that a lot of times we'll look at these things and we'll isolate them from everything else. And and you really, I mean, you you bringing up the subject of Ramses, you know, the, now you're actually bringing us closer to introducing the idea of using computers and CNC. Uh, but if we isolate this particular vase and consider older technologies, you, you may be able to create it. Okay. Uh, you you'd okay. still need to have uh, very precise bearings and, yeah. and, yeah. and uh, movement. Yeah. It's obviously and very then, advanced, advancedly made anyway. So, uh, right. How, right. Talking about the provenance here, how sure can we be that this actually is from from uh, ancient Egypt? And what can we say about its age? I know that you can't really uh, date stone, which is a problem. But uh, yeah, what are your thoughts on this? My concerns about the provenance was the uh, that it, you know there's no chain of custody in terms of where it was uh, discovered in Egypt, who discovered it, uh, um, the path it took before it was exported, who exported it, and who received it, and so all of those uh, all of those points. Uh, would could cause it to be dismissed as an item of evidence, but true evidence. However, considering the appearance of the ellipse, ellipsoid, which is, if you recall, in lost technologies of ancient Egypt, I I present many examples of the ellipse being used in the in the statuary and in the temples in Egypt, particularly at Danda. And the uh, and so the, the ellipse and the ellipsoids were were uh, known by the ancient Egyptians, even though the ellipse was supposedly only described 500 AD in Greece. Uh, so there is that, that aspect of it that kind of resonates with me to make me think, yeah, I think this is Egyptian. And then when Mark discovered the flower of life aspect of it, uh, it, it prompted me to think, okay, so we have this thing that uh, we don't know where it came from in Egypt, and we don't even know if it is from Egypt, but look at this. Uh, it is an item that has the same precision as a Ramsey statue. It has also features that are discernible in the Ramses statues, and there is the flower of life. Uh, and so... Compelling enough, I guess. Uh, that, kind of, that kind of, to me, is kind of like, okay, I look at 
I would say uh, this is a nice threshold piece. It's not the final answer. There's a lot more to to be learned. Uh, but it is something to say to the Egyptian, this is what we found on this thing. We realized that it is the provenance is kind of murky, uh, not, not uh, properly established. But you have items in your museum that you uh, can guarantee the provenance of. And what we would like to do is take one of those and do this and subject them to the same examination. Exactly. That would be and fantastic. That, and there is there is a, actually one uh, artifact I wanted to ask you about that possibly could be subjected to the same kind of examination, and that's the famous drill core number seven, number seven from from um, William Flinders Petrie, the the uh, British father of Egyptology the 19th century and and you have uh, examined that and and others have too and there is a discussion going on whether as to whether the 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 grooves on it on this drill core are spiral or horizontal and you you are adamant that they're they're spiral it's a spiral groove which indicates that that uh, there must have been some kind of a powerful drill involved here and other people say that no it's they're just horizontal grooves and do you think that uh, um an examination using uh, employing modern technology, like like in this case, also on the Petri drill core, would uh, once and for all settle that discussion about that that artifact. Probably is the only way that that argument will be settled. My methods have been called into question and dismissed by the other camp. Uh, the other camp. Uh, use methods that I question and dismiss. And so I don't accept their findings. They don't accept my findings. Uh, and so uh, neither one of us are going to convince the other one. Uh, what, what is needed is an independent objective analysis using the same methods that we used on, on the base, which would be to scan it uh, create an STL file and make that STL file available to engineers around the world who can perform their own analysis and uh, hopefully will come to the truth of the matter. Now, people who question that, uh, I mean, this whole idea that, that, that the impressive structures of Egypt uh, must have been made by, constructed with the help of advanced technology, machinery, they often ask, so where are the machines now? That's a, a common question, right? So what, right? what is your standard answer to that, to that question? Uh, yes, the, uh, <clears throat> I could, I could uh, ask the question uh, about a lot of machines that uh, have been used in the past. Where are they now? Uh, you know, I mean, we, we've had, we have, we've had machines at the plant that I worked for for 27 years. I wonder where, where they are now. I, <laughs> well, some of them I know. I know that they're in some, that they've been melted down and used for something else, whatever. But the, uh, <clears throat> you know, when you look at the age or the time period when these machines uh, would have been used, uh, and you go back to the uh, official period of time, the dynastic Egyptians, uh, 
we're looking at 4,500 years ago. And uh, <clears throat> in, in the, there's nothing in the archaeological record that indicates that those machines were known about, understood, or uh, not even any remnants of them, except for one, I think. But that's in my, my book, my next book. There is a significant evidence that I will present about a part of the machine that I think exists. And <clears throat> but the uh, when you when you do look at look at, look in the archaeological record, no, there's no there's no sophisticated machinery to say, yeah, well, those are the machines. No? Uh, ferrous materials uh, they're subject to corrosion, and you know, over thousands of years that that corrosion could you know, I mean, they could just turn into dust eventually. Um, but are we limited in the time period that we have to look into uh, for when these machines existed? And uh, or can we go back further in time? And I, I kind of, I, I support the idea of uh, a previous civilization uh, that was met with uh, a cataclysm. Uh, okay, you, you're you're, you're backing that theory. I, I was going to ask you about that. Yes, go on, please. Yeah, I mean it's not it's not my not my theory, but it is a theory out there, and and I think it makes a lot of sense. And particularly when you are considering the uh, the, the you know the degradation and the disappearance and the of of. Uh, the remnants of what what was left over after a cataclysm uh, of of this uh, civilization, because what we have now is uh, with the pyramids and you know all those marvelous uh, granite artifacts is just the the skeleton of the civilization. You know, uh, actually understanding what the what, how the flesh and the blood functioned and operated. You know. Everything was tied together. That's, I mean, that, that's a another matter altogether. If you look at uh, the way our society has evolved and how it exists, it's it's very complex, and uh, it's made up of you know different specialties. They are, they all have a certain language. They have certain specialized knowledge. It's nuanced. Uh, it's not. It stays within a particular group or company. There's proprietary information that people don't want to share. So all of this, uh, all of this uh, is going on uh, a thousand times over every day uh, throughout the world. And and so you know, it's kind of like, how do you how do you uh, make sense of this civilization? If you were if you were a person. <laughs> Assigned to uh, accurately describe everything that was going on today, down to the minutest detail. There's no one, no one individual has that has that power or intelligence or information knowledge. It's a be impossible. But if we go, if we look at this this ancient civilization, which is Egypt, the uh, the people that we make responsible for explaining all of that are archaeologists and historians. Well, I think we expect too much of them. 
I, just, I promised before that we talk a little bit about your new book, and you have already touched upon it. And it's very intriguing that you say that you you have in that book evidence of uh, of, of a machine, uh, which is very very intriguing, as I said. But uh, so the name the the title is Giza, the Tesla connection, and Tesla is very topical, of course. Is is uh, right. talked about yeah. more than Einstein these days, I think. Yeah. So. Uh, do, do you make new revelations apart from that machine? And you can talk about that too. Uh, that will once again change everything, you think? Um, I think so. Um, I like to think so. Um, <clears throat> not because it's not because of something that I have discovered, um, particularly, though there are. Uh, additional discoveries that I made that I include in the in the book that support the uh, the Giza power plant theory, but the major one is actually uh, was made by uh, a NASA physicist, uh, Dr. Friedemann Freud, and uh, <clears throat> Friedemann had uh, discovered the physics behind earthquake lights. And so that discovery, he was he was hoping that he would be able to, uh, his discovery would be accepted, adopted, and used to predict when earthquakes were going to strike. But the fundamental physics behind it is that uh, when when the, the rock, uh, igneous rock, the minerals in the rock are stressed. Uh, the rock turns into a battery. There's uh, what they call peroxy defects in the minerals, and these positive hole charge carriers, uh, when they're put under pressure, they will shoot to the surface, and that's what causes these earthquake lights. So think about that. There's a... uh, that we are actually standing on top of a huge battery. And there are parts, you know, there are areas in, in the, uh, around the world that uh, that make it uh, easy easier to access that 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 energy. Geyser is one of them, and there's a lot more to it. Uh, but I I, I have uh, a research associate, Robert Porter, who's an acoustic engineer. And then uh, Eric Wilson, the uh, aerospace engineer, but Friedman uh, Freund is uh, a brilliant man. I met him uh, at the end of last year, went to his lab at uh, the SETI Institute in uh, Silicon Valley out in California. And <clears throat> we had a very nice meeting, uh, was a brilliant guy, but uh, his discovery uh, for me, actually uh, dovetails perfectly into the primary source of energy uh, that the pyramids were tapping into and that is the, and that is the electrons contained within the lithosphere which is up to 100 kilometers thick that's a lot of power oh yeah is that the on. tesla connection the tesla connection is Number one, how do you drive the machine? 
okay, what's uh, what impels it to vibrate, uh, the uh, and also once that energy is uh, fed through it, um, how is it distributed? And so I, I actually have a, an image. I haven't published that to the internet yet. Maybe I'll send you a copy of it. But it shows it shows the Great Pyramid with a Tesla dome around it. <laughs> Sounds cool. <laughs> so, but because uh, the way uh, the way Peter Friedman Freud demonstrated uh, his uh, discovery was by taking a slab of granite, and uh, he equipped it. <clears throat> With an electrode, he capped it on one end uh, and ran an electrode from from the uh, the other end, which was actually captured inside a hydraulic press. And so he put pressure on pressure on the uh, on one end, and then there was a wire. There's a little handshaking going on, and uh, with with the cap on the other end, and electricity flowed after he was put under pressure. Hmm. Fascinating. Can't wait yeah, to and it's on, on your new book to read about this. Right. So that to me is like, okay, then we, we look at a different concept of uh, how we, how we uh, uh, access energy. Because right now, <laughs> here's a little interesting factoid for you. Uh, in 2021, in the U.S. alone, enough coal was mined by weight to build 76 great pyramids. Hmm. So think of that, a pyramid, 76 times the size of the Great Pyramid that went into power plants and, and was burned up so that we could uh, harvest electrons from the uh, generators that rotated. But look at the processes involved, like mining, uh, transportation. Yeah, it, it, it is a little bit like, the Stone Age, actually, when you look at it. Do you think, I mean, some people say, many people say, or many, but quite a few people I listen to on YouTube, at least, they say that we've had this, we've had this advanced technology for, for a long time, and, and many leaders know about it, but they have been suppressing this knowledge. Uh, and I'm not, say, I'm not saying that we've had it all the way from the ancient Egyptians uh, up to now, but at least since Tesla, for instance, or something like that, that we've known how to harvest, how to harness Energy, because everything is energy. Everything is vibrating. I, I right. mean, on the, on the quantum level, everything is energy. Yeah. So we, there is technology that has been suppressed because there's such uh, so much money involved in all these businesses that, that that are involved in you know the oil and coal industry. What what do you think about this? Yes, I think the. Uh, hmm. I know that uh, there have been some very bright people out there who uh, feel that their ideas have been suppressed. Um, and <clears throat> there is seems to be a tendency that if you come up with an idea and it pertains to the, uh, like myself, okay, I'm, I, I think this, we're, we're, we're closer, I'm closer with this next book to describing more fully a, a better way to harness electricity um i i fully expect that it, it's going to be i don't know 50 60 years before people may take it seriously i don't know it may be next week depends who gets involved i mean if elon musk 
decide, hey, you know, if I want a, a reliable source of electricity to power all the cars I'm making, I need to build my own power plant. What's the best, best thing to do? Yeah. But I don't know. So that's why I I, I devote the book to uh, future generations because of, I think, you know, when you look at the continuum of, continuum of uh, scientific development, invention, uh, when things are conceived, when they're brought into fruition, you know, how they are adopted. And, and that, yes, and there are vested interests that, um, that would prevent um, new technologies to being introduced that would make their investment worthless. Yeah, as an aside, or actually it has to do with this, of course, do you, are you familiar with Malcolm Bandel's work, Bendel? No, I don't know. Australian engineer, and he's been working for many years on how to harvest clean or harness clean energy, just like your subtitle of right. your new book says, uh, and, and directly from the atomic level or, or even the, the, the Planck scale level. And if there is any fuel involved, it's plasma or plasmoids. Uh, and the <clears throat> the uh, prototypes that he has built for to build some kind of plants have no moving parts. Uh, and patents have been secured for the applications, but the science is supposed to be open source. But I know that this guy, I mean, I, I've heard this from Randall Carlson, another man who is very big into, you know, talking about lost civilizations and all that. But he 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 knows this Malcolm guy. and. And and Malcolm Mandel has been working uh, secretly on an island in in the Indian Ocean for the last seven years because he's he knows that people are after him. They want to suppress this. They want to stop this. So it's mm. it's kind of sounds like a you know some kind of a bad movie or something. But it's yeah, I, I don't. It's get actually into, hap- it's actually happening. I don't get into conspiracy theories that much, but you know, it, uh, <clears throat> I could, I suppose, but. Uh, I'd rather not. Yeah, I'd rather not. I, I I just want to share my work openly. I don't want you know. It's like, and as far as building a great pyramid and demonstrating it myself, it's uh, way beyond my resources. I don't have, I don't have twenty five billion dollars to build a great pyramid. No, uh, but you're doing a great job, and 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 all your findings and and conclusions have been so enormously helpful to to the whole community that, that's looking into this and, and to the general public as well. And as you say, to coming future generations. I'm saying we're catching on more, yeah. yeah. Uh, what, what do you think will happen, happen in this field in the near future? Uh, I think we're wrapping this up a little bit here now. Do you see any signs that archaeologists and Egyptologists are starting to rethink the, the, the technology of ancient Egypt? They are in Egypt, I can tell you that. Um, the uh, because you know my neck, my second book when I when I saw how the first book was being received in the West, I thought I need to I need to appeal to Egyptian engineers, and and so there was one engineer that uh, took up the challenge that I laid out in my book, and he started to follow uh, follow my work and uh, do his own measurements and he's, uh, create his own YouTube channel. His uh, his name's uh, Ahmed Adley. Uh, wonderful young man, <clears throat> and uh, his channels—they uh, get—it's got millions of views on on some of his videos. 
Uh, and he's become very, very well known and respected in the Arabic speaking world. And, and is, it, uh, is it in Arabic or in, in English as well? It is in Arabic right now. Yeah. Okay. He, he I can put to, the I can put the link in the description. I mean, I, I might have some people who know Arabic listening to this. Yeah, sure. I mean, they, uh, yes. I mean, he he uh, he's he's become he's become very very well known, and uh, he's uh, he, a physicist at Cairo University reached out to him because he had done a one of his episodes on the Giza power plant theory. And uh, so this excited a physicist at Cairo University, uh, Dr. Ashraf Shbini, uh, and he had a meeting with him. Uh, and uh, I'll send you, you can show a photograph of, of them uh, talking about the Giza power plant theory. And so there are, you know, Shbini uh, supports the pyramid machine idea. Uh, it is becoming more accepted, particularly by younger people in Egypt who uh, don't want to listen to the old stories by Egyptologists. They m would much rather talk about lost technologies and their ancestors being a lot more advanced than what they've been given credit for. Yeah, that sounds... That's the state, right. that's the state of play right now. Uh, you know, wake up the Egyptians and and let them take it from there. Uh, you know, it's, it's it's their history, their monuments, and uh, it's, they have the most to gain. Right, right. right? Way to they go. Have the most to gain. Yeah. So, Chris, where can people find your your new book, your your earlier books, and other uh, work that you've done if they're interested in knowing more? Yes, the uh, well, but all the books are, are available on, on uh, all the books. Like two, two books are available on Amazon.com and probably other outlets too. Um, I mean, they can be ordered through uh, uh, bookstores uh, if they they don't exist on the shelves. Or um, I, there are many different libraries that uh, carry them. So um, those sources uh, will also be available to for my next book. So you know they'll be find on online bookstores, uh, brick and mortar bookstores. Um, yeah, I mean you could probably buy one cheaper from Amazon than you can me. Mm. <laughs> no website. The, you you don't have a website. My website, which is under a revision right now, is kind of plugged along without much tension uh, for many years. And I've been encouraged to do something about it, and I am doing something about it. So my geezerpower.com is my website. Oh, yeah, uh, geezerpower.com, yeah. Geezerpower.com. So it's, it's, uh, it needs a little help, but it, it's going to get it. it it's, uh, I think it was created in frames. Okay. Back in 1999. <laughs> ancient. So Talking about ancient history. history. Yeah. Right. It's, yeah. So it it definitely needs improving. So Chris Dunn, thank you so much for joining the show, and good luck with your groundbreaking investigations out there. Well, thank you very much, Anders. It's been a pleasure talking to you.